Good morning, everyone. Again, it's a pleasure to be standing here before you. I'm entrusted with the preaching of God's Word, uh, which is a, a great privilege and a joy. And I want to thank each of you for uh, your encouragement to me in your continued service of God. It's just wonderful to see our worship leaders and, and music players, uh, people who help cleaning up afterwards, uh, people giving each other lifts. It's wonderful to see the body of God at work, helping one another as they seek to glorify God. So thank you for being a part of that, and I pray that I might be a part of that as I minister to you this morning. Thanks, Alex, for those songs that we sung. It's good to consider the, the future of where we're going, look back to the cross and look at the grace of God. And I hope your hearts have been filled with worship and are now hungry for what God has to say in his word. I'll ask that we just bow now in another word of prayer as we come to this word. O wonderful, awesome, heavenly Father, King of kings, Lord of lords, I thank you that I can say that you are my God. I thank you that you are so great, but you are a personal redeemer who has redeemed me, who has redeemed many of us here, Lord, uh, to a relationship with yourself, to adoption as sons. And Lord, we can't help but praise you for that and give you glory. Lord, we come to your word and we do so knowing that your word is truth. Help us to be reverent. Help us to be attentive. Help us to recognize what it is you're speaking to us, knowing that though these words were penned many thousands of years ago, that you are supreme and that all of your word is profitable to us, even this day in 2019. And so God, uh, just stir within us, may your spirit fill us, and uh, Lord, I just pray that um, all the anxieties of life will be subsiding from our mind as we consider you and your word and seek to be filled uh, with your peace that passes all understanding. Amen. Every morning... I have the privilege of feeding my son Theodore breakfast and he eats porridge and he's only two years old but he's basically got the hang of the spoon. He's quite dexterous with it and you know, digging it in there and, and getting mouthfuls and so every morning it's a real blessing to, to sit next to him and, and watch him chow through that food and he loves food so he really enjoys it. But what's really interesting is at the end of the breakfast when there's just a few little mouthfuls of porridge in the bowl, there's a battle that ensues. And it's the battle between Theodore's desire to eat it quickly versus his desire to retain mastery of the spoon. And I can sum it up like this. You know, he's struggling away and I say, Theodore, would you like me to help you with that? And he'll say, no! And every morning it's the same. He really struggles to ask for help. And I look at that and I can't help but think, boy, I'm pretty similar as well. There are so many times I need help, but I just don't ask for help. And I think it's something that is common to human nature, both the fact that we all need help and the fact that we too often refuse to ask for it. And whether that be uh, despondence or feeling unworthy or feeling prideful or busyness of life, things just prevent us from asking for help, though that oughtn't to be the case. And so this morning, as we've turned to Psalm 25 and heard it read already, I'm hoping that we can glean some truths that will assist us in asking for help, particularly with reference to God, because no one can give better help than God, no one is more willing to help than God, and no help that you can receive is going to be more important than the help that you get from God. 
And so hopefully this morning we'll be encouraged in our asking of help from God. And so if you turn to Psalm 25, if you haven't already, um, you'll notice it's a long psalm, um, 22 verses, but you'll notice probably that there's a lot of stuff going on in the psalm. You know, as it was read to us earlier, you might have thought, gee, you know, David's mind is wandering from here to there to anywhere. And, uh, and what's going on here? And on that, I have two comments. Firstly, this is a personal prayer between David and God. Yes, recorded, but it's a personal prayer. So if his mind wanders, that's perfectly fine. And secondly, I did notice a structure in this psalm, which I will relate to you now. And to do that, I need you to imagine for me. Use your sanctified imaginations, as Jeff loves to say. I need you to imagine a bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwich. And that's going to be the structure. So you've got uh, bread on the bottom, then you've got some lettuce, then you've got bacon, then you've got tomato, and then you've got bread on top of that. So bread, lettuce, bacon, tomato, bread. A bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich. Alex loves sandwiches. He's, he's got me onto them in the Bible. Um, and that's the structure of the psalm here. So you'll see uh, the first seven verses and the last seven verses, they're the bread, and they're filled with petitions. If you look at that bit, um, you'll see petition after petition after petition, rapid-fire requests which David is presenting before God. And so those petitions form the bread. And then if you go a little bit in, you look at verses 8 to 10, you look at verses 12 to 15, you'll notice a change, and David's focusing more on the praise. He's remembering uh, what God is like, what God's character is, what God's promises are, and so he's praising God in those salad sections, the lettuce and tomato. And in the very middle, in the tastiest bit, you have the bacon in verse 11. And that stands out amidst the praise. David's praising all through the middle of the psalm. And then in verse 11, you have this little plea for pardon. And so as I was considering this, and considering the fact that you know, we're in this transition period, I volunteered to do three sermons on this psalm. One for the bread, uh, one for the salad, and one for the bacon. And so this morning, I'm going to be sharing with you just from the first seven verses, one to seven, and verses 16 to 22. And so hopefully you'll be able to track with me as I do bounce back and forward throughout the psalm. And Lord willing, if he doesn't return soon, uh, I'll be preaching through those other portions uh, in the coming weeks. But as we come to this morning's sermon, um, I've titled this morning's sermon, Get Real. Just trying to use some modern vernacular. Get Real. In other words, be honest. I want us this morning to observe the way David approaches God and the complete openness of his heart as he presents his needs to God, as he asks for help, and hopefully inspire you also to get real as you come to God. And so what I'll do is I'll read um, the portions of the scripture that we're going to deal with this morning. I'll read the bread portions, uh, verses 1 to 7, verses 16 to 22, and then we'll get into it. So read with me please, uh, Psalm 25, starting at verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me, for your goodness' sake, 
O Lord. Skip down to verse 16, second half of the bread. Verse 16. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. So this morning we're just looking at those verses, the bread portion of the bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwich, and we're going to be examining how David gets real, how David gets real, that incredible honesty that he displays before God. And to do that, I've noticed three main petitions that David presents before God um, in this bread section, and those will form our main points for this morning. So we'll get into our first point for this morning, which is get real and admit your physical need. Get real and admit your physical need. And we'll see this in verses 1 to 3, and we'll also see it in verses 16 through 22. It forms the biggest petition of all the things that David requests of God. Get real and admit your physical need. We'll start in verse 1, and David says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Starting by addressing the God uh, that he is praying to, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, referencing Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the I am that I am, David just pauses to remember God, remember that he is real, remember that he is having a listening ear toward the cry of his servant. And he says, I lift up my soul in verse 1. Now, I lift up my soul is not a phrase you ordinarily use in uh, modern day times, but it's a wonderful poetical phrase, which basically means I pray to you, but it's a lot more beautiful than that. You know, I lift up my soul. Lord, I I present to you, I lift up what's going on internally, what's happening in my life, how I'm feeling, how I'm going, what is all within me, I present that to you. And so David's really uh, packing a poetic punch when he says, I lift up my soul. Verse 2, Oh my God, I trust in you. And that trust is going to form a a key backbone uh, to David's psalm here. But I love what he does uh, with his describing word of God, noting it's the same as his describing word of soul. And that, of course, is the word my. He references my soul, but then he says my God. And I think this is really beautiful and not unique to this psalm either because we see uh, David in Psalm 22, he says my God, Uh, Psalm 23, my shepherd, Uh, Psalm 19, my rock and my redeemer. And so you have this word uh, my... And what he's really doing is he's highlighting the personal, the awesome relationship that exists between God and himself. And what a wonderful thing to do. And I think we're very careful uh, in our prayers to be reverent, and rightfully so. We have to be commended for that. We should be reverent. But I would like to point out that David is in no way irreverent. He is in no way disrespecting God when he says, my God. You can see that as you read the psalm and all the attributes of God that he's going to give praise for. Just by saying my, he's highlighting that personal relationship and remembering with joy uh, the intimacy that he can share with his almighty God. And it's something that might be worth trying for you guys when you pray, just to say my God and highlight that personal relationship that exists. David goes on in the second half of verse 2 and verse 3, he presents his request. And his request is 
Second half of verse 2, let me not be ashamed, let not my enemies triumph over me. And again you see that word my, he's lifted up my soul, he's presented to my God, and now he's saying here's my enemies. This is David's problem, this is David's physical need that he's admitting as he gets real before God. You have further elaboration in verse 19, it's going to talk about uh, there's many enemies, they're surrounding him, um, they hate him with no real cause. So the situation is quite desperate. This is no small matter um, that David is presenting before God, physical need though it may be. But what's really intriguing is the use of the word ashamed. So you see it three times just in verses 2 and 3. Let me not be ashamed. Um, Verse 3, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. And so what you have here is David saying, here's my situation, God, don't let me be ashamed. But then he takes a step back and looks at God's dealings with the world. Lord, when we see all of your people who love you and worship you, don't let them be ashamed either. And when we consider those people who hate you and go against you and deal treacherously, Lord, those are the people who should be ashamed. And this word ashamed is being repeated as a key word. And if you go into the second half of the bread, we'll skip down to verse 20, you'll see the same word used again. Verse 20, Keep my soul and deliver me, let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. And so again, he's really utilizing that sandwich structure, referencing some of the things he said earlier by saying them later. This is, in my opinion, a record-breaking use of the word ashamed, because mostly no other Bible chapter will use the word ashamed more. Now, I have to say mostly because technically there is one chapter that will use the word ashamed more than four times. But that chapter is Psalm 119. And that psalm's just so long, I, I just don't count it. Like, that's just not a fair comparison. And it only uses ashamed five times. So, excluding that, this chapter uses the word ashamed more times than any other, four times. Um, which begs the question, why? Why is this word repeated? Why is it such a prominent theme? And it's a good question because... As we consider David's circumstance, there was a lot that could go wrong. Like he's surrounded by enemies. So he could lose in battle and that would be terrible. He could die. I mean, seeking his life, that'd be awful. But the main thing that's repeated here is the shame. Let me not be ashamed. And I find this intriguing because what David is basically saying is, Lord, I've trusted in you. You know, I've put all my eggs in your basket, as it were. Don't let me down. I've chosen to trust in you. These people who seek my life have not. Don't let me be ashamed. If, if I lose this battle or if I die, I'll be greatly ashamed because it would be as if my trust in you was misplaced. And you'll be ashamed, God, because I'm your anointed and you won't have been able to keep your anointed on the throne. So you'll be ashamed as well. And so David presents his physical need. He admits his physical need of deliverance, but there's a strong connection to the glory of God and God's purposes. And what David does here is he breaks down this barrier that sometimes we can build, this imaginary barrier that you know, we have our, our secular life and we have our spiritual life. You know, we have the things we do and then we have the things we do for God. But David is very much saying, here's my physical circumstance, here's my physical need, I admit it before you, and Lord, if you answer this, Lord, you'll be showing yourself to be glorified, you'll be showing yourself to be faithful, you'll be showing yourself to be good, everyone will be able to acknowledge that this was your hands at work and so there's this real connection between his physical need and God's glory. And I say that just so that we won't be 
considering it selfish to pray for physical needs, that we won't think of it as something that oughtn't be brought before God because it's unimportant. We have physical lives. We're here on earth day by day with struggles and trials and difficulties. We are to present these requests before God. He cares about them and in his answering of them, he can work through us. And so definitely get real and admit your physical need. Let's go down to verses 16 and 17 as we consider more of how David presents this physical need before God uh, in the second part of the bread. Let me read verses 16 and 17. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. I highlight these verses particularly because they're so full of emotion. They're so full of words that describe his state of mind. Um, A couple of other translations will use words like, um, I'm lonely, afflicted, anguish, uh, deep distress, alone, going from bad to worse. You You can see the picture here. You can see how David is presenting himself to God, not holding back with any of the emotions, which is really significant because this is part of how he gets real before God. This is part of his honesty before God, is not just presenting his circumstance, his need, his desire for deliverance and freedom from shame, but also accompanying it with how he feels and his emotion and his state. And I highlight this because this is again something that we can struggle with. We can enter auto autopilot when we pray sort of thing and enter a little bit of a robotic mode and I don't think that's healthy I don't think God wants us to pray all stoically as if we don't really care if he answers the prayer or not there's got to be some sort of investment in the prayer and I say that for several reasons one that's what David's doing here two our God is a God of emotions he's a God who can get angry or become aggrieved or be happy with people we see that even with Jesus Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, presents himself before God with incredible anguish and emotion, which he bears out as he prays to God. And so let's remember that if we want to be honest before God, and we do want to be honest before God, it's okay to present our emotions to him. Now, of course, we don't want to be guided by our emotions. We want to be guided by God's word. But I think that's another reason to present your emotions to God. God, here is my situation, here are my emotions, help me. And when you openly bring that before God, you're allowing God to work through you, you're allowing God to uh, even change your emotions or bring other things to your mind that will address that, and you're just being completely honest, which is what God loves from his followers. David was called a man after God's own heart, and here he brings all these emotions before God. And so we see from this first petition... Uh, that we are to to get real and admit our physical need. But this is but one of three applications for us this morning, one of three uh, needs presented by David this morning. And so we'll go back uh, to verse 4 and look at our second point for the morning. And that is, get real and admit your need to be taught. Get real and admit your need to be taught. And we'll see this in verses 4 and 5, which I'll read for you now. Verse 4, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, on you I wait all the day. David is humble, he's humble here, he's asking to be guided and taught and you'll notice the words that he uses. 
He says, show me your ways. And he says, teach me your paths. And he says, lead me in your truth. And so there's a progression here as he uses these different verbs. You know, don't just show me, God. Don't even just teach me, but lead me. Or some versions have, guide me. It's as if he's saying, Lord, come closer and closer and closer, as it were, as you show me uh, the paths that I am to take. And I think there's an incredible um, intimacy and, of course, uh, poetic skill as David writes this. And so when he says, show me your ways, uh, part of that encompasses, uh, Lord, what am I to do here on earth? How am I to follow what it is you want and what it is your character demands? And he says, show me your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. And I consider uh, ways and paths to be largely synonymous, um, kind of the direction in which God would have you go in life, if you will. But what's really interesting is in verse 5, he doesn't say ways or paths, he says, lead me in your truth. And this is really significant, because when you think about it, there's a lot of ways you could go as you honour Christ, but there's only one truth that you were to heed. There are many paths you could go down as you seek to give glory to God, but there's only one truth that undergirds it. And you'll notice truth there is singular. We have ways and we have paths, but truth is singular because there is only one truth, and it's God's truth. And I say it's God's truth because he's the only person who has a claim on truth. Even David addresses it here, lead me in your truth. And in a day where everyone thinks they have their own truth, you know, it's, it's my truth or your truth, it's Bill's truth or Bob's truth, you know, everyone's got their own truth, as it were, but none of that is true at all. There's only one truth, and it's God's truth. And he's the only one who has a claim on it, because his word is truth. And so as we consider this, as we ask God to, to show us and to teach us and to guide us, as we admit our need to be taught, we need to make sure that it is accompanied uh, by action. We need to make sure that if we're saying, God, lead me in your truth, that we're heeding what he says Sunday by Sunday, and that we're heeding what he says Monday through Saturday in between, that we're getting into his word and seeing his truth, asking him to show us the wonderful things in his word. See, the Christian that says, God, why aren't you showing me what I should do, but then doesn't spend any time reading the scriptures, that Christian has no right to complain. If we're asking God to lead us in his truth, we need to make sure that we are in his truth and his word is truth. We have the holy, eternal words of God Almighty on pages before us, on screens before us. Let's make sure we consult them as we ask God to teach him. And as we pray for teaching, as we pray for guidance, and as we read his word, let's do so slowly, let's do so deliberately, let's do so so God can use his spirit and work within us. We get to the end of verse 5, and David provides some motivation. He says, For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. I'm going to bring out a really obvious point here, but David is currently not safe. He is not in a saved physical sense. He's just presented all these requests for deliverance in verse 1. He's saying, All these enemies surround me. He's not currently safe, but he says, You are the God of my salvation. And so what he's doing here, either, either he's looking back at the ways that God has delivered him in the past, or he's looking forward expectantly to the way that God will deliver him in the future. 
But either way, what he's doing is he's looking beyond himself to the greater schemes of God. He's looking beyond himself to the way God works and the way God saves. And there's a very clear application for us in that we are to present our requests, we are to present our needs and admit them to God, but we're also to consider his salvation, to look beyond ourselves as we recognize the God that can help us. When you bring your physical needs before God, when you bring your needs to be taught and you get real before him, it's very helpful to remember his salvation. It's very helpful to remember that he has saved you from the punishment of hell in eternity, that he's saving you every day in your sanctifying process as you become transformed by the Spirit, and that he will save you ultimately from the very presence of sin in eternity with Christ Jesus himself. And when we consider the incredible love on display in the salvation, the incredible power on display in salvation, it can't help but shape our minds to recognize this is a God who cares, this is a God who acts, this is a God who can help me as I present my needs to him. So part of your getting real is remembering your salvation. Because if you neglect to ponder your salvation, if you go day by day without thinking about how gracious God is, you might become hard of heart, you might become forgetful about the character of God, and it will not inspire you to pray as you forget about what God has done and what God has promised to do. And so David models it really well here as he says, you are the God of my salvation as he presents his need to be taught. And so this morning, uh, we've had two applications from our bread section of Psalm 25. Get real and admit your physical need. Get real and admit your need to be taught. The third and final application for this morning, the third petition that David addresses, is get real and admit your need for forgiveness. And we're going to get this from verses 6 and 7, as well as 18. But to start with, let's just read verses 6 and 7. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Get real and admit your need of forgiveness. David's presenting that very clearly here in verses 6 and 7. I've also got to pause to acknowledge that David is a master writer, a very clever user of, well, the Hebrew language, but it even comes out beautifully in our English translations. Because we have a very obvious structure mentioned here in verses 6 and 7. And it's a structure highlighted by the key word, remember. And so you see in verses 6 and 7 alone, uh, remember, because of your character, don't remember, remember, because of your character. So you've got remember, don't remember, remember. And as we consider these, we can see what David is thinking and how he presents it to God. Starting in verse 6, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses. Probably worthwhile me giving a warning regarding interpretation. Uh, when David says, remember your mercies, he's not saying, uh, God, you've, you've forgotten to be merciful. I haven't got your mercy, please, you know, mercy, please. That's not the connotation of remember. Now, if anything, it's more like um, in Exodus 2.24, when, they, uh, when God is looking down at Egypt and he hears their groaning, the groaning of the Israelites, and he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a lot more of the, the covenant uh, remembering, that God is intimately involved in the everyday affairs. David knows full well that God is always merciful and that God is always showing loving kindness. Again, as we consider these attributes in other translations, it's really beautiful. Great mercy and love 
compassion and unfailing love. And David is well aware that this characterizes God at all times. And that's why, really, he is remembering God's character. He is bringing it to his mind so that he can boldly come before God with his needs, and in this case, his need for forgiveness. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Again, that reference to of old is kind of looking back at the ways that God has shown his mercy and his loving kindness in the past. Another one of the great things we can get when we read the scriptures is remind ourselves of how God has been loving and gracious in the past. Verse 7, after saying, remember your mercy, he now says, verse 7, do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. And this is an extremely logical flow from what we've seen before. Let's remember the mercy of God. Let's remember the great compassion of God. And what's the right response to that? Let's bring our sins before God. Because he is so merciful, because he's so full of compassion, it's only appropriate for us to bring our sins before him, a long list though it may be. And so David really healthily reminds himself of God's character, of God's mercy, and then comes before him and confesses his sins, a model that we too should echo. Because it's really important for us to forgive our sins, uh, to ask for forgiveness for our sins, sorry. It's really important to bring them before God If we want to get real, if we want to be honest, we have to admit that there are flaws in our life and these flaws need to be forgiven. David, a man after God's own heart, knew this well. And perhaps that's one of the reasons he was called a man after God's own heart. Not because necessarily of his moral purity, but his constant ability to come before God and ask for forgiveness. And we need to make sure we're the same. We don't want any hypocrisy or falsehood in our life by just presenting our physical needs and not presenting our need for forgiveness, pretending like there is no need for forgiveness, because there always is. Remember your mercies, David says. Do not remember my sins. And then he goes on, according to your mercy, remember me. Remember me. Again, there's this wonderful personal relationship which David celebrates uh, as he remembers God, asking God to remember him. And again, he says, according to your mercy and for your goodness' sake. So you have kind of a sandwich within a sandwich as he considers the characteristics of God and puts his request for forgiveness here. Remembering God's mercy, remembering God's goodness. And indeed, as he says the word goodness in verse 7, that's going to cause him to flow into proficient praise as he looks at the goodness of God and God's promises. And that's going to happen in the middle section of the psalm. And Lord willing, we'll get to that in due course. Uh, But for now, I'll get you to go back to the bottom bread and we'll skip down to verse 18. Because in verse 18, he presents his need for forgiveness again. Verse 18 reads, Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. So in verse 18, he's basically saying the same thing as verse 7. He's admitting his need for forgiveness. He's asking God, as he should, to cleanse him from his sins. But what I find striking about verse 18 is it's, context. So we have um, the first seven verses, the last seven verses, the bread of the sandwich, and in the first seven verses you have all three petitions. You have his petition for physical need, verses 1 to 3. You have his petition for being taught, verses 4 and 5. You have his petition for forgiveness, 6 and 7. He's presenting three different needs in the first part. But in this bottom bread, in verses 16 to 22, he's basically just presenting his physical need. Verses 16 to 22 is Um, deliver me, deliver me, don't let me be ashamed, don't let me be ashamed. It's his physical need, with one exception, and that's here in verse 18. And it really stands out. 
this forgiveness is thrown in amidst the need for um, the physical need. And also, it comes right after verses 16 and 17, which is where David's really pouring out his emotions and saying, Lord, these circumstances are affecting me greatly, they're afflicting me, I'm in distress, Lord, forgive my sins. And what David's doing here is showing us something so important in that no matter what life throws at us, no matter how life makes us feel, we must make sure that we forgive, ask for forgiveness for our sins. So there's no excuse for not asking for forgiveness. It doesn't matter how busy life is, we must make sure we ask God for forgiveness. It doesn't matter how sad life is making us, we have to make sure that we ask for forgiveness. David here is being pursued by enemies, his life is on the line, he doesn't even know necessarily if he'll live another day, and yet he's able to pause, not just to mention his physical need, but also his need for forgiveness. And we must make sure we do likewise, and never consider ourselves too busy, or too hurt, or too sad, or too anything, to make time to ask God for forgiveness. And so we have this morning, uh, in these verses, David getting real before God. David's honesty clearly on display as he presents his needs openly before God. And so this morning, I hope that you've been encouraged to admit your need for help, because we're all needy people, and as you consider the character of God, what a great God he is, who will provide us for our needs. And so this week, as you pray to God and pray regularly, I urge you to get real and admit your physical need. Don't consider it too unworthy or too irrelevant to bring before God. I urge you to get real and admit your need to be taught. Humbly admit that you need God's help to learn and then read His Word uh, to become more aware of what He wants. And also to get real and admit your need to forgiveness, for forgiveness. Never considering yourself beyond uh, forgiving. Never considering yourself too busy to ask. Never considering yourself too bad to give this list to a wonderfully merciful God. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope you've been encouraged. And I hope that this week, as you pray before God, you can get real and remember His great mercies. I'll ask you to stand and uh, we'll just close with a benediction. And our benediction this morning uh, will come from Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.